Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now our verses this morning cover the topics of marriage and divorce and singleness. And these are topics that are close to us all. Topics which affect us in different ways. Jesus has to say to us some words this morning that are very important. But I'm conscious that for some of us they may also be difficult things to think about. Marriage is not always easy, and some will have even experienced the great pain of divorce or walked with others through such times. Others of us us may be single, and at times that is hard. But as we listen to Jesus' teaching this morning, we are listening to the words of our King who knows us, and he loves us, and he wants us as his disciples to grow and flourish in his kingdom. So this is a word about marriage and divorce and singleness, but even more, it's a word about devotion to the kingdom of heaven, about a decision that Jesus upholds as the most excellent decision, because it's a decision to devote our lives to him. Well, we're beginning a new section in Matthew's gospel. We've gone from chapter 14 to 18 before the summer, and now we're going to carry on through chapters 19 to 23 Um, down towards Christmas. And chapter 19 is the start of the fifth big section of narrative followed by teaching in Matthew's gospel. And like the previous four, it begins with a phrase that we see there in verse one. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings. And through the coming chapters, as we walk with Jesus, the Lord himself, as he comes to Jerusalem, well, we'll see unfolding what the prophets foretold. In chapters 19 and 20, we find Jesus teaching his disciples about the kingdom that he is going to establish at the cross 
and through his resurrection. And then in chapters 21 and 22, we'll hear Jesus and his prosecution of hard-hearted Israel. And so, in our minds as we go through these chapters, the disciple of Jesus, or the inquirer looking in, is to ask, well, will we listen to our king and his word about his kingdom? Or will we harden our hearts and face his judgment? And when it comes to marriage, divorce, and singleness, well, Jesus' words were then as countercultural as they are now. And will we listen to him? And devote ourselves to the kingdom of heaven? Or will we resist his voice and risk failing to enter it? So our plan for this morning is first to consider the creator's purpose for marriage. What is God's design for marriage? And in a fallen world, what allowance is there for divorce? And then to consider divorce as an illustration for Israel. As King Jesus comes to Jerusalem, we'll think about whether this could be a warning flag to a hard-hearted nation and all who follow their example. And finally, we'll see the example of the eunuch. Because whether we're married or single, or whether we've experienced the pain of divorce or not, Jesus, the true bridegroom, holds out an invitation to all who come to him. And he is worthy of our total devotion. And so our first point Marriage and the Creator's Purpose, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has said he will go to suffer and die and then rise. And he's entered entered Judea. And even entering Judea in Matthew's Gospel spells danger. The last time we were in Judea, John the Baptist was arrested. But still the crowds, they come to see him. And verse 2, he heals them. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And we might just overlook that detail. It seems so familiar. But actually it's really key. It's a reminder of who Jesus is. In the previous chapters, we've seen Jesus heal many people, Jew and Gentile. And as he's done so, he's revealed his identity as the Lord God himself, the one who has come to show compassion on all who will seek his mercy. So we're reminded this is Jesus, the compassionate king of the kingdom of heaven, the son of God who has come to build his church, the Lord himself who has come to save. But not everyone welcomes him. So verse 3, and the Pharisees came up to him, And tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The word to test is used of the Pharisees in Matthew's gospel. And it's also used of one other. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tested or tempted by the devil. It's the same word. These Pharisees have not come with a sincere theological question. This is what we might call a devilish test. And what better topic than the controversy of the day? Remember back in chapter 14, John the Baptist was beheaded for upholding God's word on marriage and challenging Herod's sexual immorality. And so it seems the Pharisees, well, they might be thinking if we put the same kind of question to Jesus, well, perhaps we can trap him in the same snare. And so they ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
That word any cause could be translated any and every cause. And in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, or some of them, held to a view of divorce that was essentially the same as no-fault divorce today. And there were others who had a more conservative view. But they asked this question, what will Jesus say? Well, Jesus begins his answer in verse 4 with these words. Have you not read? Have you not read? His answer to them is just like his answer to the devil in the wilderness. It's from the scriptures. And it exposes their disregard for God's word. In our current culture, there's a great confusion about what marriage is. And it's a confusion that comes from ignoring the word of our maker, just like the Pharisees are doing here. The Bible is clear on what marriage is. And of course, the Pharisees should have read, because Jesus' answer is to go straight to Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, from God's foundational statements about who he is and who we are, And what marriage is. And so what is marriage? What is Jesus' response? Well, whatever our culture may say, it's not marriage unless it's according to God's design. And first, Jesus shows us it's for male and female. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Back in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God created men and women equal in dignity and value because both are made in his image. And yet he created male and female with wonderful and necessary complementary gifts to serve him together. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And he created marriage for the purpose of such service. And we see here marriage is for male and female. It's also a public institution. In verse 5, Jesus quotes from the reading we had in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When I've taken wedding rehearsals, we have the couple and we stand at the front and we practice and run through where everyone needs to stand so they know what to do and we practice the vows. But at the end of the rehearsal, the couple are not married because for one reason, it's not public. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Family and society see it and acknowledge it. And the public nature of marriage protects from the vulnerability that secrecy brings. Marriage is public, and marriage is exclusive. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Marriage is between one man and one woman. It's exclusive of any other. And through sexual union, two become one flesh. And Jesus says this is no mere human joining. It's God's union. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God has joined husband and wife together, and it's for a lifelong union. Did you notice four times in two verses that language of permanence? A man shall hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. 
No longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees come to test Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus speaks God's foundational word. What God has joined together, let not man separate. God's design for marriage is for a lifelong union, which is not to be broken by the Pharisees then or by society today. But the Pharisees won't back down. Verse 7, they say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And here the Pharisees are referring to verses in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so their challenge is surely divorce is an option because in the scriptures, Moses commands the certificate of divorce. Well, Jesus' response is to correct them and to give a command of his own. And it's really helpful to see how Jesus handles the scriptures here. He shows us how to read the Bible because he roots his answer in the foundational creation principle given in Genesis. And then he reads Moses' words in Deuteronomy in context in the whole Bible storyline. So when the Pharisees speak of a command of Moses, Jesus corrects them. It's not a command. It's an allowance. Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Deuteronomy 24 is not part of God's original design. It's an allowance required because of what Jesus calls hardness of heart. Now, this phrase, hardness of heart, it's a phrase familiar in the Bible. It describes an attitude that rejects God's word. You can think of the image the image of a stone that won't let the maker's word permeate and shape it. It's the attitude that the Bible calls sin. And human sin is the root cause of damage and destruction in all walks of life. And that includes marriages. And so marriage, this God-given institution, which is designed to be permanent, lifelong, can be broken. And there may be situations where divorce is allowable or necessary. But these will always be because serious sin has led to it. And so Jesus words in verse 9 his command. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It's important to see that the thrust of verse 9 is the permanence of marriage. Jesus is emphatic The Pharisees' view of divorce is adulterous. And so we're not reading verse 9 looking for loopholes. A week or so back, I saw a minor road traffic accident on the Marlen Road. Two cars, they'd had a small bump. And the drivers were out taking their photos and swapping insurance details. But when BMW and Toyota made those cars, they designed them to be driven safely on the roads and not crashed. And the drivers didn't buy the car or drive it that day with the purpose of crashing. But acknowledging that things can go wrong, the highway code gives guidance for what to do when a collision happens. Well, it's the same kind of idea here. By giving this exception clause, Jesus is not undermining God's purpose for marriage as a lifelong union. But in light of human sin, he's explaining the circumstance when divorce may be permitted. And he says here, it's in the case of sexual immorality. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, 
commits adultery. Well, sex is a gift of our creator God to be enjoyed in the context of that one flesh lifelong union in marriage. Sexual immorality refers to sexual activity outside that context. And if a married person indulges in such activity, divorce is permissible, although not mandatory. In such circumstances where there's permission for divorce, it's not sin for an aggrieved party to pursue a divorce. It also seems to be no accident that these verses follow on from chapter 18, where Jesus teaches about the gospel power for repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, which holds out the possibility of restoration. Well, now I'm conscious as we consider these verses, all kinds of questions and scenarios come to mind. They may be in our minds. And in the time we have now, we can't cover them all. That's not Jesus' intention. I'd be very happy to chat more to anyone who would like to. But it is worth saying, though, that the exceptional circumstances of desertion or abuse in marriage are addressed elsewhere in Scripture, which could mean the marriage union is broken and divorce is permissible. But other justifications, that we've grown apart, we've got different interests and priorities, we're not getting along, we think we're incompatible, there's someone else. These are not reasons for divorce. They may be keenly felt, but marriage is lifelong. Where there's divorce for reasons other than such sexual immorality and then subsequent remarriage, adultery has taken place because there was no biblical reason to end the marriage. So we have the creator's purpose for marriage, male and female, one flesh, lifelong. And it's a good purpose. And it is good for society. It's good for children. It's good for us. It's good for service of our God. And so it's God's design and we are to honor it. In a culture like the Pharisees, where there is a desire to tear down marriage, to feed the desires of hard hearts, we'll need to be willing to defend it, to honour the lifelong union of our own marriages, and to help one another live out God's purpose in marriage. And for those preparing to be married, perhaps thinking about it, do you have this understanding In the marriage service, we say to the couple, marriage is a way of life instituted by God that all should honour, and it must not be undertaken carelessly, lightly, or selfishly, but reverently, responsibly, and after serious thought. Because now, as then, Jesus' word is countercultural, and the question is, will we listen to our maker? Or will we harden our hearts to his word? Because as Jesus answered the Pharisees, he's raising a warning flag for them. And this is our second point, divorce as an illustration for Israel. Through the the Bible, marriage is frequently presented as a picture of the relationship between God and his people. It's a wonderful picture, a picture of the permanence of his covenant commitment to all who turn to him. And the image is there in Matthew's gospel. It's just kind of scattered throughout. In chapter 9, Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom and says, now is the time to rejoice because the bridegroom is here. He's come to gather his people in love. In chapters 15 and, um, 14 and 15, we saw the kingdom of heaven described as like a wedding banquet when it comes in all its fullness. It's a wonderful picture of God's love and commitment. 
But here in Matthew 19, I want to suggest that what Jesus says about divorce also acts as a picture, what we might call a, an illustrated warning to Israel and their hard-heartedness. You'll have to decide what you think about this, but let me put it out there and we can think about it together. We might ask, why does Matthew start a new section with this topic, especially since he's already taught on divorce back in chapter 5? Well, I wonder, could it be that in his teaching on divorce here, Jesus is also preparing the way for his coming prosecution of a hard-hearted Israel? Back in chapter 15, he described the religious establishment of Israel as those who make void God's word. And here they're still doing it. And elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, Jesus describes them twice as the adulterous generation. Most recently, chapter 16, they came and tested Jesus. They asked him for a sign when he just fed 5,000 and walked on water. And Jesus said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. It was a warning, a warning to them of coming judgment if they would not repent. And through their history, Israel had turned from God's word to idolatry and the sexual immorality that was associated. And yet through the Old Testament, God, we read of his patient pursuit of adulterous Israel. Such pursuit that he even sent his own son to come and to win them back. But by the end of chapter 23, Jesus laments of Israel, you would not. So could it be that as the Pharisees come to test Jesus, Jesus points to their hard hearts and highlights this exception clause for divorce in the case of sexual morality as a warning to them of where their unrepentant rebellion will end. As if to say to them, you may be the establishment of Israel, but if you persist in hard-hearted, unfaithful rebellion... There will come a point when God's patience ends and his judgment will fall on you like a decree of divorce. I don't want to overpress the illustration. I don't think we're meant to try and make a point-to-point connection and parallel with human divorce. But could it be an illustrated warning as Jesus journeys to Jerusalem and Israel faced prosecution? A specific warning to them then, but also a warning to hard hearts in all cultures. It may be that there's an area of sexual sin we're indulging and we just won't repent. Not something we're battling. We all need to battle sin. We will all need to battle sexual sin. This is not a warning to those who confess and repent of their sin, bring it into the light and seek to live God's way. It's a warning to the person who refuses to listen to God's word, who won't repent, who, like the Pharisees, makes God's word void and denies his son. And so surely it's also a warning to today's religious or cultural establishments who are seeking to silence the creator and his word on marriage, even if they're clergy, and even if they're using the scriptures in slippery ways, like the Pharisees were, to make God's word void. So God has great patience, but if we deny his word and will not repent, his warning is of judgment. But remember the healings in verse 2. Remember that Jesus who gives this warning is the compassionate king. And he's going to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many. We'll see in a few weeks time that as he enters Jerusalem, the crowd shout out words. And they shout words from Isaiah 62, which is a prophecy 
that describes God's salvation in the terms of a pursuit of the bridegroom for his bride. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Because whoever we are and whatever our sin, whatever our sexual failure or hard-heartedness, if we turn from it to Jesus, we find a bridegroom with a wonderful invitation who all holds out unfailing love. And whatever bumps and bruises we've experienced, Jesus invites us to come to him. His invitation, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And as we come to him, well, we find he's worthy of our full devotion. This is our final point, devotion and the eunuch's example. Verse 10, the disciples said to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Well, here the scene has changed. The Pharisees have gone. Jesus is alone with his disciples and they voice their confusion at his teaching. It's as if they're saying, if God's pattern for marriage is lifelong permanence, then well, maybe it's better not to marry at all rather than get married with no loopholes. Well, it's hard to know their tone, but it seems like they also don't really think it's better not to marry. Marriage was the expectation in their culture. But they think that the idea of a lifelong union is so radical, they, they suggest another radical option just to make the point, is this too radical, Jesus? But Jesus doesn't soften his call for marriage. And actually, he gets even more countercultural. So we read verse 11. But he said to them, No, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who've been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this receive it. The eunuch is someone physically unable to partake in sexual intercourse. Jesus says some are eunuchs by birth, a physical defect, meaning they cannot procreate. Some are made eunuchs by men, likely referring to some in the royal courts of that time castrated to serve in harems. But his focus is on a new category. He calls them those who've made themselves eunuchs. Now, Jesus does not mean that they've castrated themselves. Jesus never asks for or encourages physical mutilation. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for those who've chosen to be single and celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says to his disciples, actually, marriage is not the be-all and end-all. He says to them, not to marry really can be better. To remain single is a really positive and good way to live for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so he holds up the example of the person who's so grasped the goodness of King Jesus and his steadfast love that they realize it's worthy. He is worthy of their total devotion. He is worth more than marriage. A decision not to marry for the sake of the kingdom is something Jesus supports. And in a world that suggests we're less than human if we're not in some kind of sexual relationship, Jesus says true flourishing is found in devotion to him and to the kingdom of heaven because it's to know the loving covenant commitment of our king, the true bridegroom. And this is wonderfully liberating for those who are single. Jesus says it's good, wise and positive thing to choose to be single because of a particular opportunity to pursue gospel service. Or to turn down an opportunity for marriage and kids because it 
would be with a non-Christian, and that would be bad for our devotion to our king. There's a group of Christians here at St. Helens who experience temptation in the area of same-sex attraction and are choosing not to pursue gay relationships because that is contrary to God's design and they know the love of Jesus, the true bridegroom. If that's a group you want to know more about, do ask your small group leader or chat to me. And some of us will have perhaps not made a specific decision not to marry. But circumstances mean that we're single And at times we find that hard. And yet we're determined to follow Jesus. And Jesus wants us to know he knows. And in these verses he looks at your devotion to him and he affirms it as the most excellent decision. The pattern for all disciples. And so we begin a new term together this autumn. And a number new among us gather. And Jesus urges us to be a church to be devoted to him. A church that helps one another to live for him in marriage and in singleness. This is a word about marriage, divorce and singleness. But even more, it's a word about devotion to Jesus, our king, the true bridegroom, in whatever our circumstance. Jesus is worthy and his kingdom is worth it. And let's pray that we would receive this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our King Jesus, the true bridegroom. Thank you for the blessing to know him as merciful Saviour and loving Lord. We thank you for his good word to us in these verses. And we ask for your help to receive it, whatever our circumstances, and devote ourselves to him. And we ask this for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and in his name. Amen.